97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Certainty Talks. On this show, we're talking about certainty, a topic that feels more important today than ever before, but all in all, always an important topic. Uh, brought to, uh, the show is brought to you with my good friend Paul Sparks here. He's not only a very successful real estate investor, but he's also a certified certainty advisor. Now, we're talking about this show because a wise man once said, if you look at the last three years, by months, you turn all your negative months into zeros, what happens to your bottom line? And that wise man is Dan Nicholson. So I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires, and the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. Paul, you want to introduce the guests? Yep, would love to. So thanks. Uh, glad to have Nick Peterson and Dan Nicholson back with us. Uh, these are the two guys who created the Certainty Operating System. And uh, Nick is new, uh, first time on the show, so glad to have you, Nick. Um, Nick has uh, created the, the Wolf Den. So if any of you guys are familiar with that, happy to have Nick here. Uh, he's just got such a wealth of knowledge in the crypto space and just in innovation in general. And uh, most of you guys, if you tuned in last week, you got to, to hear from Dan Nicholson. He runs one of the, the top accounting firms in the in the country, specializes in things like crypto and real estate. And so it's just uh, it's great to have you guys back. I know that they're both feeling a little bit under the weather, so we appreciate them both being here with us today. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks yeah, for having me. office got wiped out, but <clears throat> appreciate that. Yeah. So, right. Steve, you want to uh, one of the things that we, we always did in our uh, certainty programs is the concept of a six word update. And uh, this was a good way for us to take our thoughts and our journals from the week and boil it down into six words. So we, we thought we would start this show off with a six word update. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and lead us first? off. Um, yeah. No, uh, I'll lead us off and then we'll, we'll, we'll go it around. So uh, for me. A, this is the first time I've done a six-word update. It's a really interesting concept. Uh, so for me, I had to rack my brain, and I would say, uh, thanks to a combination of Nick Smith and some other things I'm watching, uh, uh, team at capacity means mismatched resources or mismanaged resources. That's a good one. I've got mine from this last week. Uh, got started coaching with Dr. Jeff. So that was a great recommendation from you guys. It's, he's a he's going to be speaking at our certainty event in September. So if you guys can make it out, you'll get a chance to hear from someone who's coached 
dozens of Olympians, some some big names. So excited to get to be fortunate enough to get to work with him. I'll jump in there. Mine's mine mine's simple this week. Too sick to enjoy Seattle weather. <laughs> and uh, mine is perpetually reminded to play my game. That's great. And I can so expand um, another on thing that, that we were talking about was the the lesson. Uh, I'm not sure, Paul. How how do you want to uh, work with the six word updates? I, I this is my first time. It's a very fascinating concept. It's my first time doing this. Yeah, typically the way that we did it was we would all share, and then somebody would explain what they're going through. I'd love to hear from Dan. Sounds a, that's a good one. Play playing your game. I know that's uh, that's something you like to do. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and one quick note on six word updates. So uh, this is something that we uh, adopted from a alumni event uh, that Stanford does. And as you can imagine, you have a bunch of uh, articulate, intelligent folks, and they're asked to share their thoughts, and everyone's going to share six paragraphs, not six words. And so you never end up getting to the actual content. And so they came up with this. Uh, <laughs> you might hear, uh, you guys hear that? Did you guys hear that rumble? Yep. Yes, that was the uh, Blue Angels just started practicing. So uh, this is called this Seafair uh, Seafair Week in Seattle, and so uh, they they're pra practicing right now. So you might hear uh, some jets every once in a while flying over, which is pretty cool. Um, but anyhow, six word updates is just a way to try to get everyone's thoughts distilled down as quickly as possible, so that you can hear from everyone, and then you pick on you pick the one or two or three that you're most intrigued with. Uh, and it requires stealing this word from Dr. Jeff Spencer, speaking of Dr. Jeff, it requires restraint because most of us have a hard time not immediately explaining our six word update. So we give the six words and then we give six paragraphs to explain it. And so it's really, really intended, just six words. So mine again was perpetually reminded to play my game and uh, we preach this really hard in the Certified Certainty Advisor program and everything that we do, which is play to your strengths uh, and what we call you, your game. And we teach them tools on how to, how to figure that out. But most, from my experience, most masterminds and things out there are trying to tell you to become somebody else. Oh, the only way you're going to be successful is if you do this and it requires you to become an entirely different person. But there's a mountain of evidence to suggest that the people who are the most wildly successful are playing their own game. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, on and on and on. Now we just call them eccentric because they're billionaires, but they were eccentric before they were a billionaire, right? A lot of their success has come from playing to who they are. So this week being sick, I have COVID. Um, and on a deadline to uh, to wrap up my that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, facing these setbacks, uh, tendency I just had to keep reminding myself like what is the one or two things that only you can do, and that's all that uh, I'm going to focus on for the week. Right. So when it comes to the book, only I can get in there and clear the edits. 
and provide the, I have someone helping me write it and people are editing, but only I can come in and fill in the content. So that was one of the two things. And, uh, and so it's just sort of when there's a bunch of noise, you're sick, uh, what is that one or two things that only I can do? And that's where I'm going to put my resources for the week and ignore the rest of the noise. So that's that's what I meant by perpetually reminded to play my game because there's no shortage of emails and distractions throughout the week that would be easy for me to get distracted and then I don't end up doing the one or two things that only I can do that have to get done. And because I was je jealous of your guys' yeah, uh, backgrounds, my wall, I uh, had a decorative <laughs> wall that fell down. Um, here, so I grabbed some of my kids' uh, artwork and uh, Painter's tape from the office remodel. So I'm sure you guys are uh, jealous. Uh, usually the girls sell this artwork to Nick. So you may see this in Nick's uh, office. Uh, my girls, my daughters, uh, next time he's up. That's great. So, um, yeah, I'll throw it back to you guys. We're, you know, learning a lot from. Yeah, we're learning a lot from Dan and Nick. And so we're these two things that, you know, the six word updates. Uh, what we like to see is, you know, you guys put in here uh, at the end of the episode your six word updates, but also on top of that, uh, the um, case in points, you know, uh, can you guys elaborate on what case in points is? Because we, we would love uh, audience participation when they're listening. Let's type into the chat some case in points. Yeah, so in our certified certainty advisor program, we uh, go to breakout rooms and everyone in their breakout rooms, they share their six word updates with each other. And then they share a case in point, which is uh, taking something that they learned typically in the last class, uh, but it could be just from the conversation they're having in the breakout room. What is something you've learned and how is it, uh, how does it apply in your life? So like playing your game, that's a concept that we teach. Or last week we talked about closer versus more. How has the concept of closer over more played out in some example that you can share, example case um, this week. Paul has a really good case in point about case in points and how he's used that in his business. So maybe you can share that, Paul. Yeah, we started taking this idea and applying it in my business. So we do a sales training with our team on Tuesday and we're, we're covering one of the, the steps in the framework that we've established or a, a tool in our toolbox that we're, we're covering some topic on Tuesday. Um, and then what we do is we have our team go apply that. So the concept of engage, reflect, re-engage, just again, something I've learned from, from Nick and Dan. So we take what we learn on Tuesday, we apply it in our sales process during the week. Then we want to come back on Friday and we want to share a case in point on where that was applied. So that process of, holding yourself accountable to, to actually implementing uh, that tool or that step in the process and then sharing it with the team has been extremely powerful. We've seen a lot of momentum with that in our business. We've seen an increase in deal flow. I think it just creates a lot more engagement and in a team setting. So we found that very useful for us. So that's my case in point about a case in point. Yeah, so you just said something really important around right, engage, so reflect and engage again. Uh, and that comes from, uh, that's called double loop learning. And that comes from a Harvard 
business case on teaching smart people how to learn. And so it's really critical, the smarter people are, that they engage in the process. So don't, don't change it, just do what we've asked you to do, but then reflect, tell us what you've learned from it, case in point, but then go back and do it again. Yeah. So we tend to miss that reflection part. First off, we what ends up happening is people don't actually engage in the process. They make up their own process. So yeah. step one, we just need you to follow what we've shared. And then we can reflect. You can tell us what worked and what didn't work. And then we'll take that and then we'll go back and do it again. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, sorry, we're, we're still having a little bit of lag problems with the with the connection here. So if we're interrupting each other, it's, uh, it's just kind of working through some of that technical stuff. So thanks for, for sticking through it with us. We wanted to kick it off and talk about uh, the topic for today is something called the barbell strategy. I actually heard uh, Nick and Dan present on this in Seattle a few weeks ago when I was at their certainty summit. And this has been a very, very useful tool for uh, us as investors, for me, for myself personally, for those in the whale club. So Nick, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this. Tell us what is the barbell? Where did it come from? What do we mean when we refer to this barbell? Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep it short because the we go on forever. There, there's a lot of dimensions to this, right? But if you look at um, different fields of study, like uh, in in uh, medicine, you're going to see something like minimum effective dose and maximal coverable volume, which is how little of something do we need for it to be effective? Because if we t if we do any more than that we're acquiring additional risk, but we don't need more risks to be effective, right? There's maximal coverable volume, which is how much of a thing can we do before it kills us, basically. So we've got these two extremes. Um, if you look at computer science, you see explore, exploit. And then uh, <clears throat> if you look at investing, Nassim Taleb uh, calls it his barbell. And he actually pulled it from uh it's seneca seneca's risk domestication strategy it's a bimodal strategy so it looks like a barbell if you imagine you know a barbell in the gym and the the idea is we never want to play in the middle okay that that's the common theme amongst again when you look at computer science it's, it's decision making computer science when you look at medicine or fitness uh or when you look at investing uh you don't really want to play in the middle. So I'll use fitness as an example really quick. If it takes a uh, minimum effective dose, if, if exercising three times a week for 30 minutes each time, uh, I maintain the way that I look and feel, right? But to change the way that I look and feel for whatever reason, uh, it would take, let's say, seven days a week, an hour each time. Okay, so seven hours. So to, to maintain, it would be uh, 90 minutes a week to change. It would be seven hours a week. And those are the, those are the two the highly personal to me, but those are the two uh, ends of the barbell, anything in the middle. So if I maintain it 90 minutes, but I need seven hours to make a change. If I'm going to the gym for four and a half hours a week, I am taking additional risk that has no extra benefit. Right. And I'm wasting all of that time. That's all time that could be recaptured or reallocated to something else because it's more than I need to maintain, but it's not enough to make a change. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
that that just highlights in a different domain uh, playing in the middle. There's no real benefit uh, and we're taking on additional risk and there's probably resources that could be reallocated to something uh, more effective or more beneficial or a different domain or different area in our life. So hopefully that makes sense. You can kind of imagine the barbell and we want to play on either side. Now, typically in investing in the way like in the C uh, Taleb talks about it is the barbell is one side is reliable. A keyword is reliable. Uh, investors and business owners, people in general tend to think that means easy or passive and it could, but the word is reliable. Reliable meaning I'm going to get about what I expect to get most of the time. Right. So it's consistent. Yeah, Nick, just to, to give an example of I think that that you mentioned that hit home with me is you know, think about the reliability of, say, a car, for example. Right. If 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 you had a 90 percent reliability car, meaning 90 percent of the time when you take off, you're going to get where you expect to go. But 10 percent of the time, the car breaks down and you don't get there. There's problems with it. Well, we wouldn't, most of us wouldn't drive that car, right? We, we're looking for a much higher reliable system. So when we say reliability, that's, a, that's an example, an analogy I like to think of because, you know, it makes sense in that case. Like we would not get in a car that had a 10% chance of not getting us where we want to go. So we apply this in a lot of areas of our life, but we're, we're sort of blind to it in other areas. Yeah, mostly areas involving our own behavior. Right. You know, we, we expect a very high level of reliability from uh, MapQuest. You know, if you pull up MapQuest and it's just like a tiny percent off, you're outraged because you expect this extreme reliability in all these areas of your life. Um, but then when it comes to our own behavior, so the way we invest and the way that we work and the way that we behave every day. So <coughs> this way this looks in business, I'll start, I'll start there and then talk a little bit about investing and then kick it over to you guys is most of us start something or investing because it represents some upside. Anything new uh, is going to represent upside, even if there is a ton of data that you got from a bunch of other people. Uh, in my opinion, anything new is, is inherently unreliable till we have the data. Uh, you could look at some things like the S&P or real estate over 30, 40, 50 years and get some trend. But when we start a business or a new venture, it is an upside play or we wouldn't do it. It represents something new and exciting that otherwise would not exist. And the goal, we have one or two goals when we do this, same with investing, is typically we think it's going to be a home run, right? we're counting on it being a home run, or we plan on it working for us. That's a lot of real estate, right? As you're, if you're accumulating many, many, many doors, you don't necessarily think they're going to go appreciate by a thousand percent, but they're supposed to work for you, right? That's the idea that we have. They're going to be over here. These assets are going to be working for me. So you, we generally think of them as a infinite upside or reliable. And I said over here, it's going to work for me and I'm going to get what I expect. Um, what happens is that we typically don't end up with that kind of reliability for whatever reason, uh, for a business owner, it's because you keep showing up and breaking stuff. 
Uh, and we realized at some point that it may not be a home run play, right? Like we can look at some of my businesses, Dan and I've had this conversation about his businesses. We have joint companies where we say, you know, this is not a a hundred X play. We have relationships with all of our clients. We cannot scale that. We don't want to scale that. So we have to make it reliable. So, so you realize it's not a in front upside play. What happens is over time, if we're not careful, our investment of our time and our money, it kind of falls in the middle. And now what the middle looks like is we realize it doesn't have this infinite upside. It's very unlikely that it's going to cash us out. That we're going to wake up to like a Lollapalooza of money raining from the sky, right? Um, so it's no longer an upside play, but it is also not reliable. It's like the car you talked about, right? Uh, we don't know what it's going to do. We have no idea day to day, month to month. We can't get a handle on it. And therefore we cannot make any decisions. We can't pay our bills. We can't do any of these things. Uh, we're, we're basically crossing our fingers and hoping the market cooperates with us. So we end up in the middle and it's a tough spot to be. It's a tough spot to be because you're not going to get cashed out anytime soon. And, uh, your, your emotions and your quality of life and all this stuff are kind of at the mercy of things outside of your control. So I hope that makes sense. Um, what we want to try to do in our methodology, which I'm sure you guys will talk about and, and we'll continue to talk about is the solvable problem. What we want to do is we want to help individuals get what they actually want out of life. I got a little bit of an echo. So, yeah, I'm still getting an echo. I can hear myself. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can, I can sort of ex expand on that. Uh, we call that loading in the middle, a J-O-B, right? It, there's, just, there's just not a ton of upside there. Um, and, and why is that? Because we have to trade our time and our energy for it. it you know, we've, we've, I think that a lot of us make the mistake of assuming that that's, that's reliable, this job, it's reliable. And the real question is like, well, is it, you know, what happens if your industry changes or if you lose your job or, you know, whatever, and, and the number of things that could happen. Um, so you start to realize that a lot of us have a tendency to load weight in the middle of the bar um, by, by either making something that should be reliable, trying to 10 X a business like that or spending uh you know, overspending on the upside. Dan, I'm sure that you, you've probably experienced this with a lot of your clients, I guess. Have you observed this in, in the real estate space? How have I observed it in the real, real estate space? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the challenge, when I mean, we had this conversation a couple weeks ago without getting into too many specifics about your business. Um, but the, the, often the challenge for, for folks in uh, real estate, depending on specifically how they're investing, is that uh, they have periods where they have a, a ton of cash, and then they have a period where they have no cash. And throughout that timeline, though, they still have personal responsibilities. Maybe they have a spouse who wants to uh, go on uh, vacations or uh, upgrade their quality of life. Uh, quality of life and the challenge is that they don't have a reliable business to be 
they have a ups, hopefully an upside business. And so that makes it difficult to inform what, how do we modify our day-to-day lifestyle, right? So I don't like to use upside businesses to pay for day-to-day expenses. I want to use my reliable business. Does that make sense? Because a reliable business, it's reliable because it has predictable cash flow. So if I'm going to increase the quality of my life, meaning taking on some sort of ongoing expense that's going to exist in perpetuity, I'm taking that from the reliable business. That means a reliable business needs to be generating more cash flow. The danger is when I steal from the upside play and roll that into an ongoing commitment, and then six months later the market turns and I don't have the same sort of uh, cash coming in to now be able to fund the new lifestyle. That's a So when you really, think about your real estate. That really hits the oh, spot, right? Yeah, I really, I mean, like I, there were times, right, in my career where I didn't know if I was going to close the deal this month, right? And, but the wife still has expectations of paying the mortgage, paying for groceries, right? We're trying to plan a vacation in three months, but with what money? Because we don't know when the next uh, deal is closing. Um, you know, we're not in, in the investor space, in the real estate space. We're not necessarily paycheck to paycheck, but we are at times closing the closing in the earlier parts of our career. I think kind of Paulza mentioned this in his past, right? When he was flipping, like the reason why he, uh, he kind of got into his world is because he had to have a lot of cash because his flips, there were, there were, uh, months at a time i believe between flips is that accurate paul yeah and i don't mind sharing some personal you know anecdotes for how i specifically applied this um so we think about the barbell the concept is we don't want to load anything in the middle so it either needs to be consistent reliable predictable or we want it to have a lot of upside with very little downside and and so when i looked across my business uh risk a lot of times has to do with whether you're using your own money, right? So if we take a look at strategies, for example, that as real estate investors we use, we do a lot of different things. We can do wholesale, we can do fix and flip, we can do creative financing strategies, we can do novations, uh, you know, there's a ton of different things we can do. And so I looked across our business and I said, well, what are the deals that we can do with no money out of pocket? And if we are gonna put our money on a deal what kind of upside does it have and so what we started realizing is that with fix and flips for example that was the definition of loading the weight in the middle of the bar for us um you know we've had some good we've had some good flips and we've had some bad flips so you know the likelihood that it goes well is let's say it's 70 percent. i don't know what the percentage is it's not great the likelihood it goes bad is also um you know there too so we looked at it and said well, pop tops, we're, we're still able to leverage private investors' money. So we're not putting any of our own money in the deal. But instead of making, let's call it 50, 60K on a flip, we could make several hundred thousand or, or more on a flip. You know, so the upside was significantly higher with a deal like that. So what we decided is if we're going to put our money on a deal, we want there to have a lot more upside in it. Or we just want to make it reliable, which means we want to turn it over quicker. We want to either do a wholesale. I mean, Steve, I know you're a big fan of Novations, and now so am I. Why I love Novations so much 
It's because I don't have to come out of pocket for very much at all. We don't have to buy the house, right? We don't take on as much risk. Um, retail, wholesale, these are types of strategies, novations that fit really well with the reliable side because we don't have to, we don't have as much risk in it. If we're going to take risk and we're going to bring capital in, we want there to be a lot more upside. So anyways, that's right. how I look at the barbell inside of my business. And that's how we make decisions is really, well, where does it fit? If, if we're loading it in the middle, we need to scoot it to one side or the other. Yeah. So Nick, let's check your audio real quick. Are, are, are you back? Are you good? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, I'm good. No, we're good. Yeah. Um, and that, that was articulated really well. So the, when we talk about the barbell, there's a few, there's a few benefits of just conceptually, you know, um, sometimes we have events and people are like drawing barbells, trying to play stuff. Uh, so I'll just give you the practical application um, and some takeaways here is if you could draw out and just be honest with yourself about here's everything I have going on. Is it reliable? Again, reliable means do I get the outcome I expect to get often? Okay, so if you can't tell me what you're, how many hours you're going to work in your business next week, it's not reliable. Uh, if you can't tell me with some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of confidence how much rent you're going to collect next month, it's not reliable. Okay? So is it reliable? Do, do I get what I expect to get most of the time? Uh, or is it upside? Does it truly have this, this like, insane... Uh, symmetry to the upside asymmetry to the upside or is it the middle and like i legitimately have people draw this out you know and they find like most things they are doing like they fall in the middle now they might have a business in the middle or a portfolio in the middle and then when you zoom in part of that business or portfolio is reliable and the rest of it's in the middle right so what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what falls in the middle and then can we make it reliable? And if not, we, we got to find a way to get rid of it so we can recapture those resources and reallocate them to one of the sides, right? So that's one is um, you can really start to figure out what, what do I need to work on? Meaning you find what's in the middle and either make it reliable or figure out how to stop doing it. <clears throat> then um, we also need some balance. So we go back to Dan's uh, solvable problem and what you're really trying to accomplish, right? <laughs> we can't just load up the upside because we do have responsibilities and we do have these rules, right? Like we don't rob from the, the, the upside play inherently is going to be volatile and it's unknown. That's why it's over there. So we can't rob for like basic expenses and quality of life from there. So we may have a, some extra bandwidth or we may just clear out all of this stuff in the middle of the barbell, which is which is the version of what, Paul, you did, right? You said, you know, this flipping these houses, it just sucks. It's basically a job. It doesn't have this blow-off top upside and it's not reliable. It's right in the middle. So you, you clear those things out and now you have this bandwidth, this time, maybe you just want something to do. We can strategically say, well, if I'm trying to domesticate risk, risk being me and my family not getting what we want or what we need, right? Risk is not, it's not all about money for us. It's about the important things, right? Making sure we lock those in. So 
we may realize that we have a ton of money and some resources tied up in the in the upside. And if any of those things hit, we're going to be multimillionaires or billionaires. Right. So we may choose to to say, okay, what? How can I improve the the reliable the reliable side? How can I create more reliability? And on the flip side, you might have a whole bunch of boring, reliable stuff because you're super risk averse. And you might try to figure out, you know, maybe I want some more exposure to risk. So the barbell, like all of our frameworks, it's not designed for you to like learn it and then know it and repeat it. It's, uh, it's to inform behavior. So if we really take stock of everything we're doing, where our capital, where our time, all that stuff is, and we understand the concept of the barbell, we could just we could get everything out of the middle and then we can discern if we really again paul great great example say okay well i need more reliability what is going to provide me with that right and now that informs our behavior or you say i've been super conservative i have this super reliable and you know at this rate i have a very high probability that i'm going to retire in 40 years based on what i already have Maybe I should take some home run shots so I can potentially retire in three years. And you might allocate some resources over there. Right? If we don't have this structure and we're not thoughtful about it, we're gonna pile up that middle with like just more work to do. Are the are the two ends of the barbell uh, always reliability and upside, or are there other uh, other other things we're looking at? Well, it depends. It really depends on, so this, that's a very, there's so many dimensions and Paul, I think has probably seen me go through this. Um, and Dan might have some input as well. There's, there's dimensions of it, right? Like there's a personal, there's a personal preference, you know, it could be volatility, more volatile, less volatile, which in some ways is reliable and upside. Uh, it could be active and passive. So these are kind of right. like so now, potentially like sliders. Like you, you're, you're looking at a website and you're like going through your filters and this, you're kind of like, you got to be on one end of the slider or the other. Don't be in the middle of the slider. Yeah, in, in the middle, you are inherently, uh, so the middle works, the middle works sometimes mathematically in a vacuum. If we assume all of our measurements are perfectly accurate and nothing unreliable is going to happen, that's why we live in the middle, right? Because we do these projections. Well, I'm going to get 18% every year and compound it, and I'm just going to work 30 hours a week. And in a vacuum, yes, that will get you there. But life happens. Randomness happens. COVID happens, right? So we get pulled to the middle because uh, we've done these calculations and we've done all these thought exercises, and for some reason people continue to assume that things are going to go exactly the way that we think they will, even though that's never actually happened. So in the real world, typically, yeah, we want to move in all areas. We want to move um, out of the middle. That's where we, that's where we have not necessarily, we have the most amount of risk, not necessarily on paper, but because we have the least amount of uh, margin for error. Right. Well, and it's okay to move through the middle too, right? You know, yeah. it's it's okay to move from like let's say we start something new because you know you said this earlier. Anything like let's take crypto for example. You know, crypto is a new thing, so inherently it's got to sit on the upside side of the barbell. 
Um, anytime you do something new, like let's say it's you're trying to learn novations, you're trying to learn how to do development, you're trying to learn how to flip for the first time, and it represents upside, and you want to make it reliable, it's got to move through that middle, right? And, and that process of moving through the middle is what we want it to do. We don't want to sit still. Moving through that path is, is sort of how I think about it. If it's in the middle and it's stagnant there, we either want to get rid of it or we, or we I think we have a frame to think through this. Dan, I think you, you know what frame yeah. I'm talking about. What, what is that? Yeah, that's the what I call the investor frame. And the investor frame is based off what I know today when I um, reinvest in this business, piece of real estate, et cetera. So say the real estate's worth a million dollars. If I had a million dollars in cash, would I buy this property? Why or why not? But I wanted to step back for a second on just talking about this barbell because I invest in a lot of businesses. Uh, I help a lot of distressed businesses. Nick and I do that uh, together and invest in businesses together. And we have shared this barbell strategy, I don't know how many times at this point. And a theme that I've noticed is first off, the visceral reaction from folks, which is, yeah, this makes complete sense. And aha moments start to go off. Oh yeah, I am playing in the middle. And then we check in three months later, six months later, Nick, and where do we, where do we usually find these folks? Still in the middle, back in the middle, right back in the middle. So I want to talk about why people listening right now and or the people listening that are going to tell this to their friends or family, why they're not going to do anything with what we're talking about. Right. And I call this is uh, we have a framework called the case framework, compile, analyze, strategize, execute. Most of us just want to strategize or execute. We got a bunch of cool ideas over the weekend uh, and we come in and we brainstorm a bunch on Monday and then we never do anything with it. Or we come in on Monday and we just do a bunch that's strategizing, or we just come in on Monday and we do a bunch of stuff that's executing, but we never compiled any data and analyzed it. So we don't even know if our strategy is good to begin with or if our execution is going to work. So what I see over and over again and why people don't take action on this because they don't really know their numbers. So we dig into the numbers on a business. Usually that business is composed of three to five businesses. Right? A bunch of different uh, revenue sources, lines of business. And 75% of them are operating at break even or loss, and 25% of them are profitable and covering the loss and or making and hopefully some amount of profit. And so there's this sort of, if net they're making enough, they're making a profit, they go, well, I don't wanna change things because I'm already making a profit and loss aversion kicks in. I'm worried I'm gonna make less. So I'm not happy with my lifestyle, but I'm still worried I'm gonna make less. And what's being missed is when you dig deeper into the numbers, 75% of your business is losing you money and so if you can take the time that you're spending on those losses and reallocate them, you're gonna make more or at least the same while working less. So I just encourage everyone to think about 
not just the business at the high level, but break it into its individual components and really figure out the time and the profit coming from each of these segments so that you can then allocate those that business accordingly and, and turn some of those losses to zeros. Yeah, so I think that's, that a, that's such a huge point. And you mentioned case. Yeah, uh, it was very helpful. Yeah. I think uh, you mentioned case, and that's one of the things that I, I learned very recently from uh, from uh, the two of you. And uh, as I was listening to it, I, this is where I went back to that mismanaged resources, right? And I think that you know, uh, Nick's talking about uh, if you're on the wrong part of the bar, you might be managing your resources incorrectly. And so that would really hit close to home. And now for me, that, that's a case in point, right? Like taking, learning what we're talking about, the barbell strategy. And if we're, if we're going, if we're up do, doing more than the minimum effective dosage, right? I don't know what the word is in business, but the minimum effective dosage and pouring too much effort into an area, draining the company of those resources that could be applied somewhere else. If our team is at max capacity, when they could be maybe more, uh, lower capacity, more effective, and so on. Uh, so that was the case in point for me. I'd love to hear on, uh, in the audience, everyone that's listening, how you know the barbell strategy, the case we just talked about here, which we'll probably have to dive deeper into in another episode, is if there's a case in point for you guys and, and your, uh, in your world. Um, so uh, I think we were talking about the investor frame. Can you elaborate some more on the investor frame, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. So investor for, so we have 12 core principles that we teach as part of a certified certainty advisor program. Uh, and uh, one of them is called investor frame and it's based off what I know today, would I buy this thing, whatever that thing is, business, um, piece of real estate, uh, would I hire this employee? Would I continue in this relationship? And so oftentimes I hear no from folks like they've been running their business for 10 years. Okay. How much do you think your business is worth? $3 million. Okay. If I gave you $3 million right now, would you buy this business? And almost immediately, no. Well, why not? And usually the answer is because it's in the middle. It's actually a job. They're like, okay, well, why is it a job? And we start to deconstruct that. Because what we're trying to get to is what would it take for us to turn this from a no to a yes? Meaning you would, if you had the cash, you'd want to, you would want to buy this business. So what would it take to turn it from a no to a yes? And then is it worth the resources necessary to make that happen? Right. So would I buy this business, real estate, et cetera? If no, what would it take to turn it into a yes? And then based off that, am I willing to take those actions? Now, what I started asking people, and we did, I did this at the, the summit that we had a few weeks back that Paul was at, is when folks get kind of hung up and they're like, I, I don't know what it would take to turn this to a yes, or, I, or even I know what it takes, but I still have resistance to doing it, is do you resent this business? Do you resent working in the real estate business? Do you resent, we got some other folks who own accounting firms. Do you resent the accounting industry? And usually people go, 
no, it's afforded me a pretty good lifestyle. Like, okay, well, do you resent your clients? Do you resent your employees? Do you resent your vendors? And that question or series of questions tends to get to the essence of what's holding them up. Is it something is going on that uh, is uncomfortable to say out loud? Like it's uncomfortable to say, yeah, you know what? I kind of resent my employees, kind of resent my vendors. Okay, well, why do you resent them? Okay. What can we do to change that? Because that's what we need to change to start the snowball to ultimately implement what needs to be fixed for you to turn that no to a yes. And if at the end of the day, you can't, you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to put in the effort or the, the fix is too costly, then the answer is, how do I sell this? How do I get out of this? So that I can reallocate those resources to something that's either reliable or high upside, right? Some of us, and I was guilty of this in the past, I shared it. I used to own a real estate brokerage and do a lot of investing myself. I had some what I call convenience real estate. So I bought a house, I lived in it, and then I moved in with my girlfriend, now wife. And I was like, hey, you know, I always wanted to have a rental property. I turned the house that I was living into before into a rental property. And then I did that, you know, another time. But one of the two, based off what it's worth, I wouldn't have bought as a rental property to begin with. It was good for what I needed as a, as a bachelor and the lifestyle that I was living, but it wasn't really an ideal property as a rental, right? So would I rebuy that property if I had the cash? No, why not? Because it's not in a good location in the Seattle area for uh, optimizing for renters. That's not something I can change, location. So what did I do? I sold so just to sort of give a practical application of that. Well, and Dan, one thing that, that I learned from you is choosing to stay in an investment or a relationship or have an employee that works for you that you wouldn't hire again is the same thing as hiring them again, right? Choosing exactly. to stay in that exact same position is making the exact same decision with your capital or your time or your energy or whatever it is that's taking from you, you're choosing to essentially opt in every time you don't opt out. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that we are press, naturally going to gravitate that towards that. Yeah. We're going to naturally oh, gravitate yeah, say, towards that, that, choosing uh, the certainty of misery. <laughs> I apologize. So yeah, I was gonna say is that, is that presence of mind, that clarity, right? Uh, uh, the Jim, uh, Jim Collins talks about, because that's one of the things, right? If you got an employee that you're not quite satisfied with is knowing what, what I know, knowing what I know today, would I hire them again? And the answer is no, then you, then you got to go. Right. And there's like, uh, you know, your reference, the properties that you own as a primary that you turn into rentals. I mean, we got a lot of people that I bought this property wrong as a flip. Well, now I should keep it as a rental. No, you never bought it as a rental. Why would you keep it as a rental, right? If, you, if you're going to lose money on this flip, then lose money on that flip and reallocate the resources. But the worst thing to do is to keep it as a rental if your objective was never to buy rental in that area. Yep. Yeah, so, so what tends to kick in in these moments is loss aversion. So on the example that you gave with the flip, 
biases kick in and I'm going to tend to want to hold it because I want to, I don't want to have to admit that it was a bad decision. And hey, if I hold it long enough, eventually I can break even. Now, what I know, having spent years in the investment space, you know, in large portfolios, $100 billion uh, plus, is that the best traders lock in losses faster. And it may seem counterintuitive, but what do they know? Resource allocation. Uh, I'm going to take this loss, I'm going to get the capital back, I'm going to redeploy it in some other asset that's going to make me my money back faster. Right? So I still have to recognize the loss, but I'm going to get back to break even faster, potentially with less effort. So yeah, it sucks to have to admit uh, that the decision didn't work out the way we expected, but ultimately, can I get there faster? And so that's a, that's a war that we're just going to wage within ourselves and potentially with our spouses and partners, et cetera, because it's going to be hard for them as well to recognize that loss. Yeah. It reminds me of the, uh, the analogy that I hear. It's like when you're trying to get out of the hole, first thing you do is stop digging. <laughs> yeah. We, we have a tendency to just keep digging because, uh, I don't know, that's a human thing. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but that comes back to that loss aversion. We don't want to lock in our losses. So we keep following this thing down and down and down. And, you know, you hit on it, you nailed it. The best traders lock in their losses. They know how to say, this is no longer reliable. This is no longer represent upside. There's nothing I can do to make it reliable. So therefore I'm going to get rid of it, recapture those resources and reallocate them to something that either produces reliability or upside. Well, I think, Paul, yeah, this we is actually really relevant like right now. Uh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Dan. So I'll say this is really relevant right now because we're, we're, we just hit, you know, an interesting phase in the market because like it's been super hot for two plus years. And now we got a bunch of guys with flips. They're like, well, I bought this and I was expecting to sell it for 400000 But, you know, should you still list it for 400000 or should you list it at a price that you know will sell today, which is now it might be 360, 375, right? And so you've got to, do you want to lock in now or do you want to, you know, go through this loss aversion and list it at 400,000 while you're paying potentially 1% every single month, paying four grand a month in hard money payments and try to wait it out. So I think this part right here about investor frame and being realistic and, and and taking a and actually auditing your real life scenario as it stands today, not based off a decision you made three months ago, six months ago. Yeah, it's tough. A lot of tough in you know in the moment to make those decisions because because loss aversion is a real thing. You know, it's it's really tough to to lock in a loss. We're dealing with this right now on a flip that. We had considered selling a few months ago because we got uh, just some, some permitting problems. We ran into some foundation issues. We had an opportunity to sort of get out of it uh, and take a, I mean, it would have been a decent loss. But of course, you know, we said to ourselves, no, 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 we're not going to take that loss. We're going to finish this thing. We're going to keep pushing forward and, you know, we'll see how that works out. Um, of course, it's, it's just, this is, the challenge of being a good investor. So that's why we talk about these frames. And, you know, I like to think of the frame as, as a glass, you know, different lenses, different glasses that we wear 
to view our business through. And this is, I found to be very helpful in, in thinking about the barbell strategy. Does, is what I'm doing in the middle of the bar or is it reliability or upside? And if it's sitting in the middle of the bar, knowing what I know now, would I continue to operate this way? Or is there something I can do to make it reliable or upside? I think a way to navigate, pull yourself up in these moments is to uh, take literally the colloquial terms that you're using in the moment. So we might say I'm getting buried right now or I'm getting, I'm drowning. Like we've probably all said some version of that in, in investments. Like, man, I'm, I'm drowning right now. Just, okay, well, if you were literally drowning or you were literally getting buried, what would you do? Well, one, very, very first step is you have to make a declaration to yourself that you want to survive, right? And then if you want to survive, yeah. something that you do, what is the most efficient path to get my head above water? And so if you think about that, like in literal terms, and then apply that to the, uh, here goes another uh, uh, That's the Blue Angels for those of you that weren't uh, practicing above our office right now, for those of you that uh, weren't here at the start. But if you're literally, literally drowning, declaration I want to survive, and then what's the most efficient path forward to get my head above water? Now, when we apply that in the investment scenario, I'm drowning because like, cash flow is just, okay, well, I want to survive. And I want this one transaction to bury me, right? I can, I'm going to lose so much money on this transaction. I'm going to take me years to like survive it or maybe I have to declare bankruptcy. Okay, well, I don't want that. So then what is the most efficient path for to get me just back to baseline, right? which might be, which is not often, again, digging a deeper ditch, letting myself sink even further down, right? I'm dry. Now it's going to be even harder for me to get my head above water. So check yourself on the like internal dialogue. Think about, okay, the, that colloquial term that I'm using, what would I do in the real world? And then take that back to the actual problem that you're faced with. Yeah. Um, so I want to uh, real quick uh, mention, you know, if you guys are enjoying what we're talking about here, um, Paul and I, uh, Nick and Dan, you know, we've, we've partnered up, we created the whale club. So if you guys are interested in, you know, getting some more information about that, go to blockchainwhales.com. We also have a live event. We got Dan right here, Nick, and we also have Dr. Jeff Spencer, who's committed to speaking next month. Uh, in Denver, and uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer, you know, his resume is ridiculous. He uh, mentored uh, Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, Floyd Landis, Bono, and a whole bunch of other outrageous names, right? He's been their mindset coach for decades, and he's going to be speaking uh, at our event. So uh, check it out. You can go to blockchainwhales.com. You can find out how to work with Paul and myself, how to uh, attend the event in Denver, um, and, uh, yes, there's something else we want to talk about was preference versus binary. So Paul, do you want to take the lead on that? Sure. Um, this comes back to Dan's operating system. This is just another uh, commandment that we, that we talk about. And it's important to remember 
that a lot of times we ask questions about our business, you know, should I do this marketing campaign? Should I, should I flip? Should I wholesale? Should I buy rentals? And the way that we look at preference versus binary, binary meaning there's a right or wrong answer. So the example that, that I like to think about is if you can go on Google and type the answer in. So for example, if you go on Google and you say, Google, what color is the sky? Google's going to give you a pretty clear answer on that. But if you go on Google and you say, Google, what's my favorite color? It's, it's going to struggle to give you that answer, right? That's a preference-based question. And, and what Dan has helped me realize is that, you know, it seems like 95, 99% of the questions that we ask are actually preference-based questions. They're not exactly, there's not a right or wrong answer to that. So should I do direct mail? Should I do cold calling and texting? Should I buy rentals? Should I move into a new market? You know, there's not a right or wrong answer to these things, but oftentimes we have a tendency to, to think that there is. So, so recognizing that, you know, how this plays in with the barbell concept is you don't have to do something just because you started doing it, right? You can stop doing that at any point in time. That's your preference. You can make preference-based decisions around your business that may be right for me, but completely wrong for, for you and your business, Steve. And so, um, well, I think a perfect example of that, right? Talking about case in point, if I try to start doing pop tops, like Paul makes six figures plus, I think there was one, he made 200,000, right? On a pop top. If I try to do a pop top in Phoenix, a, no one's buying a pop top in Phoenix and B is so hard to make a basement in Phoenix, Right. It just wouldn't make sense. But but Paul makes a lot of money with pop tops in Denver. I should definitely incorporate pop tops in my model. So uh, it sounds like this uh, preference versus binary is kind of like, you know, the question, like, should I do this? Should I do that? And the answer is usually and people don't like it. It depends (laughs) on you. It always depends. Right. And it it comes back to to Dan's six word update for the day, which is you got to play your own game. A lot of times we look outside of ourselves for other people to tell us how to play our own game. But these are preference-based questions because a lot of us have different goals in mind. Pop tops might be right for me and completely wrong for the next person because we have different preferences. We have different um, value systems. Some of us might uh, have a preference towards larger projects. For me, I just enjoy structuring larger deals. I like doing uh, less volume and larger deals. There, there could be an operator who enjoys doing, you know, the 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 volume game. And again, it, a lot of this just comes down to preference. So when you're ma- when when I'm making decisions about my business on whether I should or shouldn't do something, I first have to ask myself: Is this a preference-based question or is this a binary question? Because if it's preference, we need to stop seeking consensus. And that is the, that's the, cru- you know, the crux of all this is we have a tendency to want to seek consensus for our decisions on preference-based questions. So we ask people, well, what should I do? And, of course, they're going to tell you what, what you should do based on their preferences, right, which may or may not align with your preferences. So the theme of the CCA, one of the main themes is you got to play your game. In order to play your game, it requires understanding that most decisions are preference-based 
And seeking consensus should be the last step, not the first step. Did I get that right, Dan? I think you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, very, very well said. When I really uh, learned this concept, it was uh, in my marriage with in my marriage. And I realized that a lot of the friction that uh, I was having is both my wife and I are, I'll just say type A personalities, uh, is uh, trying to agree on a preference. And it's just, but approaching it like it was right or wrong. Like there's a right way to, one exact way and only one way to load the dishwasher. One, I usually give the example of condiments. I hate mayo. Like I am emotionally allergic to mayo. And I get a lot of uh, crap from people when I go out to eat and they're like, oh, here comes Dan. Like no, no mayo, no aioli. But that's just a preference. For whatever reason, I just, it grosses me out. It's like a texture thing. Uh, but there's not a, like, when it comes to our tastes, people tend to be more accepting. Oh, that's just a taste. But so many of the things in our life are just a taste, right? Uh, we just don't realize it because we have such a strong preference about it, such a strong feeling around it. And so you're exactly right. Can I go and Google this to get the answer? And so once you realize that a lot of the discussions, most of the discussions are preference-based, to me, it turns the noise down. Like it turn, turns the volume down. Like, okay, that's your opinion. This is my opinion. Which one can we align on? Like, we're not going to agree, but we can align, meaning it's not the way that I would do it, but I can take it on as if it's my own. Right? So uh, that has helped me turn the noise down quite a bit as a type A person who wants to be right. Just like, I want to be right. I don't know many people who want to be wrong, but like, I really want to be, I really want to be right. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I don't have to be right on a preference. So that just sort of turns down the noise. And also uh, to consensus, you know, it's allowed me to filter out a lot of the feedback because as you're, you go on this journey as an investor or entrepreneur, you're going to get a ton of scrutiny and then expectations and then more scrutiny and then more expectations. And so I found it really helpful to tune out all of that scrutiny and expectations by going, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but that's from your perspective. That's your preference. I'm not going to accept that feedback because you didn't take the time to even ask me what I was optimizing towards. Like you didn't even ask me my preferences. So I'm discounting your feedback because you didn't even take the time to find out what my preference is. You're just giving me your preference. So that has become this, sort of um, coping mechanism Dan, as well this, as. Has, yeah, how does ahead. that land? Right? I, like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just hanging out with Dan. And I was like, you know what, Dan? Here's what you should be doing. Do you just go back to just straight to, you know what? You didn't take the time to ask me about my, what my situation. I'm going to completely discount yours. Like, is that, is that exactly how you say it? Uh, well, that's more of an internal dialogue than an external dialogue. Uh, <laughs> if someone just gives me, uh, you know, I'm, 
I'm also, I'm a type A per personality, but I'm also a recovering people pleaser. So I got like a weird uh, conflicting personality of sorts. But if someone just kind of dictates that you should be doing this, I might like nod and, and you know, somewhat go along with it, but I'm not like internalizing that feedback and taking it on. Like in my head, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's your, that's your opinion. Um, but I'm, I've discounted it because your opinion doesn't factor in my preferences. So it's more of an internal thing than an external conversation. And, and does this affect your, like, could you talk about preference versus binary? It kind of gives you clarity. So does this help you, like, sh shorten your research? Like, you know, you talk about compiling in the case uh, acronym earlier. Does this, like, reduce your research time or, like, or, or are some other places this comes into play? Uh, absolutely, it cuts down on research time, right? Because if I'm researching a preference, that, uh, that re Google's not really going to help me. Right. The first step is to look internal. What is it that I want? Who am I? What am I trying to get closer to? Closer versus more. Right. Back to that. And so just by being able to, to immediately properly characterize the problem, is it binary or is it preference? And I go, okay, it's preference. Now I'm going to look internal. What is it that I want? Right. Is this going to allow me to play my game? Right. So we get a lot of requests from folks who uh, want us to invest in their businesses or want to partner, want to create something new. And they go, hey, we want to create this new thing. It's going to require you to travel a bunch. Okay, well, starting a new thing is a preference, right? I don't have to start a new thing. Am I going to be okay with traveling yeah. a bunch? Well, right now, the thing that I want the most is time with my kids because uh, I got like two more years where they still want to hang out with me. So I can't commit to a business that's going to require me to travel two days a week in perpetuity. So no, that's, that's quite literally as quick at this point, because I've been practicing this for years, how fast I will process that now. Right. Okay. Preference. All right. What do I want? What am I trying to get closer to? All right. Pretty clear. My number one thing. All right. Is this going to get me closer to that or not? Not? Okay. I'm out. Yeah, I think the key to this is, is to just recognize that, you know, it's tough in this uh, world of internet marketing, right, where everyone tells you this is what you need, this is, this is what you need, this is the, this is the solution right here. Um, you've got to be doing this. You've got to be doing that. But those are certainly preferences and not a right or wrong answer. Um, so it's just it's just another way that I've found to be very useful to filter information. Um, it's more of an internal dialogue, as Dan was saying. That's how I've been using it and applying it. Um, and specifically around seeking consensus from people who don't have experience knowing exactly what my preferences are. And so, again, that's just completely shifted the way that I approach uh, feedback from people. You have to be careful asking for advice when you're really, you're saying, well, what, choose my preferences for me. Tell me what my preferences should be. And again, you know, Paul, that's not your game. You and I, we sat in a call with a consultant, someone trying to give us some advice. And I was like, boy, this is really interesting. 
Uh, I wonder where he's going with this, but okay. I mean, that's a very interesting perspective. And you kind of were sitting there and you were like completely skeptical. I was like, this is not the Paul I've known. Like Paul's like a really friendly guy. He kind of like goes along with things. Like Paul's excessively skeptical here. And then towards the end, you're like, I knew it. And you had like, this guy just opened a loop for him to close himself, right? He tried to create something for me where I have to close the loop with his solution. Right. So uh, do you think yeah, that, don't do that strategy, that strategy you guys are doing is no good. <laughs> hmm, immediately. Interesting. You're trying to tell me what preferences, what my preferences should be. I bet you he's going to try to sell us something on his idea at the end. And of course, that's what happened. Right. Right. So um, so do you think then, you know, understanding preferences versus binary kind of helped you maybe like open your eyes as I was going into it's like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, okay. Well, that solution does make sense to that problem. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you think this kind of preferences versus binary kind of helped you approach that with a more skeptical mind or a, a different uh, filter? I do. I think you have to look at these at the, the certain, certainly these individual tools can be helpful, right? Uh, but what I like to, the analogy I like to think of is I've got a toolbox. I've got all these different tools that are here. And this is what the certainty operating system provides is a toolbox. So we're not just going after, at, you know, at it with this closer versus more preference versus binary um, on their own. We're, we're filtering through these different principles and different filters to make good decisions. So, you know, to me, it's, it's the totality of all the, the, the commandments and the principles together that really make decision-making almost obvious most of the time. Uh, if you filter things through, you can make good decisions and the, and the answer typically pops out at you. Um, so again, I can't thank you enough, Dan, for, for teaching this to us. And really guys, this is what we're teaching at the whale club. This is the, this is the essence of what we're, of what we're doing is learning how to be good investors, good business owners, um, using sound principles and, and, uh, essentially make good decisions through a framework and an operating system. Yeah. So that's why we named the show certainty talks. And, you know, we kind of had a case in point last week because we learned about naming your puppy. And uh, Paul and I, we named our puppy like immediately after we decided we we're going to do a show together. Um, I wanted to, uh, again, remind everyone, if you guys are interested, you know, in working with us, uh, talking about this on a regular basis, we got the Whale Club. I go to blockchainwhales.com and we do have our event coming up in September where we got uh, Nick Peterson, uh, his uh, he his video is uh, feed is not working at the moment, but I put in there a voracious truth seeker because in listening to him, this guy cuts to the core at everything, right? He is absolutely intent on finding the truth, right? Um, we got uh, Dan Nicholson, uh, certainty OS uh, creator, and this guy, man, like the frameworks that he's come up with have been so helpful. Um, and then we do have a few seats left on the next cohort. So if you guys are interested, again, working with Paul and myself um, on the on the Whale Club, again, go to blockchainwells.com. You can find information on the Whale Club, and you can find information about the next event coming up in September uh, in Denver. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. And we got Dr. Jeff Spencer. Again, the guy has advised and, and, and helped with mindset. Some of the most impressive people, I mean, for me, Tiger Woods, 
that is an incredible person to add to your resume. It's like, oh, yeah, this is someone I helped uh, through some tough mental challenges. So um, go to blockchainwheels.com, uh, and then uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thank you guys for watching today.